For those willing to listen, learn, and have eyes to see and ears to hear, this is the Nonpartisan Evangelical, where we're challenging the mindset of right-wing Christianity and encouraging people to have their minds renewed and hearts transformed. Let's have better conversations about the life modeled in the Bible so we can truly tell the world God is not mad at you. This is the Nonpartisan Evangelical Podcast at npepodcast.com. Now we're joined by Bryce Yoakum. He's a licensed attorney, a graduate of the Strauss Institute of Dispute Resolution with Pepperdine University and CEO of a local credit union. So he brings a lot of credibility to this discussion, Ashley. And so, Bryce, thanks for, for joining us this morning. Thanks so much for having me, you guys. It's my pleasure. So maybe we should just talk for a second about how we stumbled into this conversation today. So Paul and I over morning coffee this morning, it's Wednesday, May 13th, are talking about um, just the, gosh, just the, the almost like feeling sick to our stomachs with the conflict that we're seeing in our own community, um, seeing protesters show up at people's houses, people getting shoved, just like, it, 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 gosh, there are so many different ways in which we're seeing conflict play people out. People getting it, arrested at restaurants. It has it happens to be COVID right now, but let's be honest, this is just like the political discourse of America over the last decade plus. Um, right. And so um, we were just talking about like, how in the world do we change the approach? How do we build new and different muscle memory for our community members. And um, we started talking about like, we need to just get people on the air giving us some input and advice on what is reconciliation? What is mediation? What are the essential ingredients? Does it mean you're compromising if you're talking about reconciliation? And just some of those things that like, we need help understanding. So our first call was to Dr. Bryce Yoakum. <laughs> not, not officially a doctor, but he plays one on this podcast. So, Technically a doctor, but I don't operate on anybody. I think. Yes. <laughs> so maybe just start off by um, giving us some basics and talking about your training as a mediator and um, what are the things that you would like for society to know when it comes to mediating and navigating um, through life with people who don't always agree with you? Sure. Um, I think I want to just talk about how I was drawn to this to begin with and sort of my journey with it. Um, but or- originally... I fell into this because um, a group from the Strauss Dispute um, Resolution Center at Pepperdine, the Institute there, came to our local church to talk about conflict and how to resolve conflict as sort of a an extension of dealing with issues in a new organization, in this case, a, a church. And I was so struck by the idea of, of having um, a paradigm or a model for taking a conflict and then turning it into, to be cliche, a win-win. Um, and that really got me excited. I'd always thought I wanted to go to law school, but I'd never really seen a path for me that made a lot of sense. And, and when that came into my life, that idea of it's not about avoiding a conflict because that's not resolution either. It's about engaging this conversation around something that we don't agree on, trying to find things that we do agree on, and then building that into how do we move forward. And, and so I was just, the Pepperdine had the best institute for that in the country and that it was right, you know, close to home and, and a place I had been interested in being. It's really exciting for me. Um, it would sort of foreshadow my own um, personal dealings with conflict as I went through custody battles um, and had to deal with moving into new phases of my life and saw mediation in a really 
poor way, and then also dispute resolution in a really positive way. Um, and so that's kind of how I came into it. So somebody's feeling an injustice today. They, the, the governor is making me stay in and I don't want to stay in. The governor's not allowing my business to open up. I want to open up. My friend wants to stay sheltered in place because his somebody in his family is uh, immunity compromised. How, how do those people feeling injustice coming from either side start to have a, a, a productive conversation about the issue? Yeah, I think I think a big part of it, Paul, is that if we have to recognize that we have those feelings. Like it's when something is done to us that we don't feel good about. Our first response is usually self. Um, I heard someone say once that that we're not born good and we're not born evil. What we're born is selfish. And then, as an adult <laughs> and as a parent, our whole job in life is to learn how to live in community. And so um, when we're threatened, we, we go back to those old ways, right? We, we go back to me. And I think recognizing that that's normal and okay personally is, is sort of that first step. But then just like that evolution, we have to say, but how do I live in a society? How do I live in a community? How do I be a, not just about me anymore and about other people too? Um, and I think that is a really big first step in that process is to know that there's a lot of other people out there feeling like I do, feeling like there's an injustice being done, feeling like, and it could be the person on the other side of this argument. It could be the person who's, who is out of work and they're unable to pay their bills right now and they don't know anyone who has this terrible disease. And so this doesn't seem fair to me. And conversely, it can be right on the other side. I have to go to the work every day. I'm an essential worker. People aren't taking the right precautions. They're putting me at threat, right? And so in both those cases, it's we're right to sort of feel those feelings. The question just is, what do we do from there? So I wonder if um, maybe we could could like take a step back for a second and, and think about a non-COVID, a couple of non-COVID examples and then sure. see what we learn from that and then go back to COVID and think about how would we apply that Um in the conflict we're dealing with today in our own communities. So maybe just give us some examples of cases you've been involved with, either personally or professionally, where, you know, a little bit of what the conflict was about, um, how those things got resolved or didn't, and what the ingredients were for those outcomes. Sure. So I think what I would reflect on is two two same settings, two different outcomes. Um, when I personally was going through um, a custody uh, part of my court case and part of a, of a separation, um, we went to a court-appointed mediator. And the mediator started the conversation by saying, if you don't figure this out here, the judge is just going to decide for you, so you better figure it out today. And it became a very competitive, very reductive conversation about who gets what. And I remember at that time, I was still in law school and still going to some of these cases at coursework and, and dispute resolution and just thinking, this is textbook what they tell you not to do as a mediator. Um, and, and in the end, we, we sort of came to an agreement that then fell apart later because it wasn't done um, with the right intent. And so one of the outcomes for me in that was to try to help other people who are going to be in similar situations. Going through a divorce, especially with children, is one of the most painful 
um, difficult breakdowns in, in our communities that happen all the time. And so I had um, reached out to our church, and at the time I was working at Fresno Pacific, to say, I I'm willing to do mediation for people for almost nothing to try to help them go through this process and to learn from sort of my own experiences. And usually what we start with is letting people talk about their feelings and, and how aggrieved they feel or how sad they feel or sometimes even how angry they feel. Because if we don't do that at first, if we don't recognize where we're all at, it, we can never move towards resolution. But then the next step for me was always to find common ground. And in a marriage that has fallen apart, if they had common ground, they probably wouldn't be in that position to begin with. Um, and especially if there's been some sort of um, unfaithfulness as part of that relationship. But where I would always find some success and where we could always start to rebuild what this new relationship is going to look like is thinking about what was best for the kids. And so what we, what we could get both sides to agree on is that this was not the children's fault. And so then what does our behavior have to look like? How do we have to sort of change what we're doing and even how we treat one another in order to preserve this thing that we care about more than we care about anything else? And, and in those conversations, I was able to see people who had absolute disdain for each other at times or who had been hurt so bad, be able then to themselves say, I want to do X but I know what's right is why. And because I believe in this thing, these children, this, this value system, I'm willing to try why. And, and you could see sort of this redemption start to come out of really difficult. They weren't best friends, but they could have conversations about what was right going forward. So it's kind of about finding a common goal together. Sure. I think one of the primary principles I learned at Strauss was um, if you start positionally, you're never going to get there. And uh, that's number one. And then number two is it's never what people say it is. So whatever the position is that I, I've taken, that's kind of a proxy for whatever is really going on. And if we don't get to what's really going on, we can't move forward. If we just keep fighting positionally, um, if it's competitive, right? if it's competitive, we're looking for victory. And in every victory, there's defeat. And you cannot build a healthier community on defeat. If I'm coming from the selfish place, that right. only works as long as I have more power than the other person. And the second they have more power, then, then any of my needs go away in that. So exactly. And, and another concept we talked about a lot there was how do we expand the pie? Because if it's a fixed pie, every extra bit you get, I lose. And so then what we end up with is where a lot of poor things end up, which is 50-50. Because 50-50 means we both didn't get what we want. And sometimes there are opportunities for us both to get what we want if we just step back and sort of look at the bigger picture, recognize and validate each other, and then talk about what our cares and concerns are for, for ourselves and understanding that in the other person. And then how do we move forward in relationship?
Hi, everybody. This is Paul. Thanks for letting me interrupt this great conversation. And having conversations like these are what the Nonpartisan Evangelical Podcast are all about. And I want you to go check out my website for resources like these at npepodcast.com. That's NPE, Nonpartisan Evangelical, npepodcast.com. And there's tons of blogs and podcasts and things you can check out there. And a few ways you can get more intimately involved with what we do. We have an insiders list. If you go to the NPE, podcast.com website, sign up for the insiders list, then you'll get all the updates on what's happening with the nonpartisan evangelical events we have coming up, new resources coming out. And just for signing up, I'll give you a free ebook called The Making of Joseph the Novel, which is how I wrote my novel that I'll tell you about coming up. And I'll also give you the first three chapters of the novel. And that novel is the second way you can get involved. It's a book I've written called Joseph Comes to Town. And the subtitle is When the Religious Right Goes Religiously Wrong. And it's a it's a non or it's a fiction book about how the transformation of one man along ideological and religious lines can have an impact on an entire city. And if you click on the Joseph the Novel tab on the NPPodcast.com website, you'll see people telling you how they've enjoyed the book. It has reviews and other information and how you can buy either the paperback version or a Kindle version of the book for yourself. Check out Joseph Comes to Town there. And one other resource we have is our nonpartisan evangelical Patreon community. And if you, you like books in audiobook version, you can get my novel there in an audiobook series, which is being released sections at a time. And it's a lot of fun. I do commentaries for each of the sections as well. So if you like audiobooks and you want to hear my book, Joseph Comes to Town, Sign up on our Patreon page. So go to NPPodcast.com, hit that Patreon button in the upper right-hand corner, and you can join in there and get the audiobook series and have a whole lot of fun with us. Ashley and I do a lot of things over there on the Patreon page. So let's review. NPPodcast.com is the website. The Insiders List is how you sign up to hear what's going on and also get my free ebook and three free chapters to my novel. You can find out about my novel on the website by clicking the Joseph the Novel tab and hear reviews and see other things about that novel. And if you want to join our Patreon community, help with uh, support uh, financially of the nonpartisan evangelical, then click that Patreon button in the upper right-hand corner. The website is NPEPodcast.com for the nonpartisan evangelical. I want to partner with you to have a better level of conversation and start to heal our culture and our community rather than divide it. NPEPodcast.com is the website. I'm Paul, and I'll be so grateful if you go there and join us for a little bit more from the nonpartisan evangelical. Now, back to the conversation. Thanks for hanging out with us on the Nonpartisan Evangelical at NPEPodcast.com. So respond to um, to this declaration. <laughs> resolving conflict, resolving this conflict means that I am weak. What do you hear? What do you hear in that statement? I'm compromising. Fear of vulnerability. Um, I think one of the things that I've had to realize um, in my role today, and as a the leader of an organization, is that every every sort of leadership role is made up of two things. It's it's a competency piece and it's a compassion piece. Or some people say authority and vulnerability. And if you don't have that competency 
I'm sorry, that, that compassion or that vulnerability piece, you're always leading, you're always moving forward, you're always by winning. Everything is winning. And again, I'll just say like in every victory, you have defeat. And we all know from personal experience, defeat does not feel good. And so fear of vulnerability means I'm really afraid to be able to be honest with you and to be open with you. And what that does is that puts that same fear in the other side. So if I take that hard stance, what I'm assuring for myself is that the other side is going to too. And if what I'm looking for is the destruction of this whole thing, then, then mission accomplished. But if what I'm really after is something better, is to, is to really um, create a better community, create a better relationship, then I have to be able to be honest about my own fears and concerns and be willing to talk to someone else so that they can do the same. Because without that, Ashley, that is the actual issue. The issues are those fears that are down there. And so if I can't be honest about them, the other side can't be honest about them, there is no resolution. It's positional. And, and, and um, unfortunately, there are people that, that victory is everything. But for most of us, what we're really trying to do, what we espouse to be doing, what we say we're doing, especially in leadership, is trying to make this place better. And the only way we do that is together. And together means being vulnerable and being honest and open with each other. It doesn't mean being a doormat but it means being willing to talk about what I'm worried about so that I can address what you're worried about as well. So in um, this COVID conflict that we've got right now with um, open right away or open, you know, open in some sort of sequence that gets as many businesses going as possible um, versus you know, maybe a public health perspective, whatever. I, I mean, I don't want you to, I, I'm not asking you to make a judgment call on that at all. But like, well, let me back up and say, um, with conflicts that I've had to deal with either personally or professionally, um, you know, I, like I always try to start with understanding the other person's perspective. Um, and it is really, really difficult to do and oftentimes have not done so successfully. But I think certainly from a leader's perspective, like if you've a if you've got the power, so to speak, if you've got the authority and um, you're in this situation of conflict, like it seems like it's it's up to you to try to consider the other person's perspective first and foremost. So let's just let's just do that exercise for a minute. Let's think about um, the small business owner who, you know, isn't able to sell their goods or services and they're literally seeing you know, their, their life's work kind of slip through, um, slip through their fingers. Um, like let's, like, let's think about how that person's feeling. How, how, like, how would you advise that person? The other side of it is let's think about the public health professionals. Like, don't you realize you're not going to be alive to enjoy, you know, the fruits of your labor. You know, you're, 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 you need to think about all these other people. Like how, how do we kind of get into these two sides to get to the point where we could then create a space for a win-win conversation? Um, I think it's, it's sort of, you know, going back to what we were talking about before a little bit here is to say, wh- what is the goal? What are we really trying to do? Right. Um, and, and understand that that's the goal. And then that we come at it from different perspectives. Um, and then certainly as you were saying, um, the worst thing we can do is to demean someone else's um, concerns or to, or to minimize them 
in the face of what we would consider even greater concerns. Um, no one, um, no one likes to feel like their feelings are unimportant or don't matter or aren't being taken seriously. And what what I see um, in this current situation is that happen a lot. Either a a dismissive, um, well, you don't care about people. You don't care if people die. Clearly, because you want to reopen. And on the other side, well, this isn't really a big thing, but it's killing us financially. And so, so that dismissiveness does not help the conversation in any way. What does help is exactly what you say, is this idea of right, seek, seeking first to understand the other person and, and validating those feelings. Um, we live in persistent poverty counties. If you think that people are financially stable and have the wherewithal to battle something like this, you're, you're wrong. Um, we know through our work at the credit union that a significant number of people can't even afford a $400 unexpected bill. A majority of our population. So they're not ready to be unemployed in COVID. And those are real, literally tens of thousands of people come to this country every year seeking greater uh, financial opportunities for their families because they care for their families. So to, to minimize that or to dismiss that would be wrong. Equally, as a person who's in an essential business and, and has a team with families on the front lines every day, talking to people, having to interact with people, I worry for them and their, and their safety. And to think that, that um, them wearing masks or them washing their hands is somehow unimportant um, is equally wrong. And so what we have to do is recognize that there are some real felt needs here that are that can both be true. And then and then starting from that standpoint, say, what do we do to address both of those concerns so that it doesn't feel like, a, well, it's either open all the doors and everybody comes out and, you know, masks be damned or no one gets to work, deal with it. Um, no lives can be lost. And, and we talk about compromise like it's a bad thing, but I think what we need to think about more is collaborate. How do we collaborate on this to make sure that we are meeting both the financial and physical needs of our people because both are equally important and, and they are actually important to every human being. We just find ourselves in different parts sometimes of these arguments, defending the part that means the most to us in that moment. And I think we have to sort of step back from that a little bit. That answer your question a little address that. Yeah, for, definitely. And I think um, just a, a couple of key points that I'm hearing from your comments in terms of like, okay, what what are the ingredients for successful like community reconciliation, community space to solve problems together that like there's no way around it. We have to solve these problems together. We can't isolate away from them. Um, you know, and I, it, first and foremost, it is a recognition of the fact that we are like in this case, literally all in the same space. <laughs> so, um, and I just think we're really struggling with that. You know, this, whether it is the political uh, dynamic of the day that I think, you know, we're dealing with like 10 years plus of this um, very intense partisan political dynamic, COVID, you know, like the, uh, I've heard it on the news, the first political pandemic, like um, yeah. it just seems like there. There is like that very concept is what we're fighting about 
is is there such a thing as community space where we all really do have to practice these um, hard, you know, disciplines of reconciliation, mediation, navigation, whatever? Like there, it seems like we're in a world where, like, we want to fight about that, yeah. and we can't even get like that big rock established to then try to find a path forward. And and to jump in on that. It, this there is tribalism and community involved in this as well as as we're we're defending our our tribe in the midst of all of this as well yeah it's you know paul we've talked about it it's it's very nuanced and very complex but i think um you know one of the things that came to me as you were talking ashley is sort of grace like where is the grace in all of this and and i don't mean that in any religious way even but um none of us this is this is a fact have ever had to deal with this whether we are business owners or uh, nurses and doctors or leaders of countries or states or counties and so in order to be able to do the best that we can all do we need to have a little bit of grace for each other to realize that we're going to get some things wrong And what we don't want to do is be so positional in our arguments with everything that we prevent people from ever admitting that they got something wrong so that they can pivot and change it for the benefit of all of us. Um, What you're identifying is this polarization and and like Paul's saying, this tribalization from which there are many, many, many benefits. But one of the bad parts about it is it becomes an us and them conversation. And I think what, what, my dream is, and I think what the dream should be for us is how do we do this well as a nation? How do we do this well as a world, let alone a city or a county? Um, and, and in order to do that, then we can't just think about me, right? It just keeps coming back to this. We're still all struggle with that fight or flight, lizard brain, born selfish piece of us that our survival is sometimes about thinking about ourselves first. And unfortunately, though, that is not the thinking that gets us where we need to go today. The thinking that gets us there is the melting pot thinking. You know, the thinking that gets us there is, is this nation thinking that, that, that we have to care about every person here and think about how do we do this well together. Um, I'm always struck by, and this may just be, you know, sort of my professional training. But but one of the things in the formation, even pre this country, this concept was ultimate individual freedom is like the goal. But, but the big thinkers realized that that is not how community works. And so for the benefit of community, which we were going to get by becoming this nation, we still have to give up a little bit of those individual freedoms because the benefits of community are so much better. And that, that's the principle still here at work, which is, yeah, if it could all be Bryce's way, I mean, what a world, <laughs> right? At least for me. But the reality is the world's way better when it's a way that works for Bryce and for Paul and for Ashley and for every other person that, that we're in community with. And, and perfection maybe isn't the goal, but working in that process um, builds a better place. Yeah, and I think I always look at it sort of in these terms. Grace is such a soft and gentle word, um, and you know that's for a mediator like you, Bryce. But but if if I compromise my rights and stop at a stoplight, which I hate, by the way, and it makes me angry every time I have to do it, 
But when I do that, I'm I'm making life safer for your children. And I'm doing that because that makes life safer for my children. It, it actually, in some ways, is a selfish act to say, I'm going to compromise for a better life for all of us. And if I take care of you, you're going to take care of me. So I don't know. Maybe that sounds a little more manly than just grace, huh? Whatever you have to tell yourself, Paul. <laughs> I, think, I think ultimately we're talking about this idea of saying um, – for this to work well and for me to benefit from relationship with you, I have to at least recognize that if I got everything I wanted, that would have a negative impact on our relationship. And so the relationship that we have is so much better that I'm willing to collaborate with you and to create ways of us interacting together where my freedom doesn't hurt you. And, and I just say all that, not to have a conversation about freedom, but more to say it goes back to this idea of being communal and community-minded. And I think if nothing else, we can all rally around the idea that our communities are really important. They're important to ourselves, but more importantly to our children and for those blessed with grandchildren to grandchildren. And what we do today has, has an impact on how those communities flourish or or how they devolve into divisiveness. So not to um, open a whole nother, like really significant part of this conversation, but, uh, but, but to do that. So I am going to do that. Uh, even though I know we don't have a, a, a lot of time left. Um, I'm, I'm struck by everything you've said. Um, it makes a lot of sense to me, but now I'm putting myself in the shoes of people who have experienced real oppression real tyranny, not something, you know, not faux tyranny that like looks great on a you know political headline or whatever. But people in our community, for example, they might hear me sa- saying the very words you said and be like, okay, you know, that's all well and good for you to preach community, but you haven't been on the receiving end of real oppression that I've experienced. And so, you know, like, is it possible in the sort of spirit of community that you're talking about, is it possible to, and I'll use the words whitewash, um, real conflict, real oppression that that is surfacing right now in this, I mean, we're seeing the, the you know, disparate impacts of COVID in our communities of color and in disenfranchised um, community groups. Um, and, and that is being like placed as the equivalent to people with traditional bases of power who maybe own and operate businesses, et cetera. Like how, so how do we, how do we reconcile Mm -hmm. that, that there's real stuff that, um, that is coming up that means, no, listen, your system and your ideas need to back down for a second because look at, look at the impact of those ideas on, on me and my community. And is there a time to say, Hey, I know where you're coming from, but what you're doing is wrong. It's just, it's just wrong. I think, I think ultimately what we're reflecting on are maybe a couple of different but related things. And, and one of them is, is you know, we, we tend to find ourselves today in sort of an outraged arm race, right? So, so in this arms race of outrage, we, what we have to do is find a, a word that is going to trigger even more outrage than last time. And, and rather than... Um, Rather than addressing real issues and real topics, what we try to create is, is more anger and more divisiveness. Um, 
and it and it happens in every group and we all um are susceptible to it but but almost in the way that the boy who cries wolf the more that we do that without the fundamental realities being underneath it the more we actually diminish those words so so what we see as an escalation is in the end sort of a a race to the bottom where where words have no meaning anymore um and certainly for those who've experienced real oppression um who've lived in poverty not for 6 weeks or 8 weeks but literally for generations um we tend to diminish those truths by using these words of escalation and and i think again it just comes down to those of us involved and those of us in leadership roles do we sort of support that outraged arms race or do we pivot it to conversations that really have an opportunity for civil discourse and for for real progress because certainly um what we're feeling in our communities today is real but i would say to your point actually there are people in our communities who have been feeling this forever and in much bigger ways and as a part of their everyday life and to take that away from them by by sort of saying us too um i think can do a lot of damage for both sides frankly that's pretty good i um i'm going to reflect on lizard brain <laughs> <laughs> to reflect on the outraged arms race um the benefits of community i think that is really the nail on the head is like it's hard to see that right now people who are um people who are struggling are finding it hard to see the benefits of community and i think like that's just something to put out there like really are we ready to walk away from the the concept of there being benefit to community um and maybe that's a good a good resting place for this conversation. Yeah, I I think, you know, when I was doing this it's funny the research I was doing at the time was about eminent domain, right? Which is literally the government coming in. You guys know. Um and I was reading about John Locke and John Locke is often cited by Jefferson and people like that about, you know, sort of these principles of life and liberty. But he literally said like yeah, my all my wants and my freedom being 100% perfect is like the dream for me but because living in society is even better i'm i'm willing to rein some of those in a little bit to make space for you and i just think i mean that is the foundation of the country that we live in and and if we were willing to give that up i mean we can choose that but then it's no longer the first principles of why we're all americans like it just does it we've abandoned those first principles and and i think that right that's another that's another podcast yeah well, it's really I, good i mean ultimately i keep asking can can a democracy of the american experiment survive if we completely distrust each other and are always running to opposite corners and at some point we're going to have to risk having some of these hard conversations and trusting each other and laying down some of our weapons. Yeah, it's interesting that you said that, Paul, because, you know, the founders didn't expect the constitution to last for 200 years. That was not their intention. You know, their idea was that this was a good model for a while, and then when it was regular time, we'd get another one and we and we'd sort of revise this and and sort of to your point, we started this country from mistrust of another oppressive nation. 
built on this idea that we could do it better and trust each other. And, and little by little, and sometimes far too slowly, um, groups on the outside have been slowly brought into being able to trust. But, you know, in the beginning, we didn't all trust each other. That group did. But there was a lot of groups around them who were disenfranchised from the whole life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. And we've been building slowly over the years civil rights, suffrage, to trusting more of us and to more of us being able to trust that leadership. Is the natural progression of that then another a downside, or can we continue this building more space and more trust for more marginalized individuals? I mean, that's that's my dream, is that we continue to look for the other and the least of these and, and, the, and the, the outsider and continue to bring them in to a benefit that they should have had from the beginning. If we're going to do another 200 years, I think we'll we're going see. to have to. <laughs> All right, Bryce Yoakum, hey, we appreciate you joining uh, us today, Ashley and me, and, and uh, thanks for, for challenging us to a higher level of conversation. Thanks, you guys. I really appreciate your time. Thanks, Dr. Yoakum. <laughs> <laughs>